Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abysmo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabysmo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Welcome to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. My name is Yasha Modi from NYU Langone, and today I'm joined with Kyle Kovacs from Wild Cornell and Priya Vakaria from the Retina Vitreous Associates of Florida. And today we're going to be discussing a paper from a couple of geniuses in our retina field, and it's called Punctate Inner Choroidopathy Like Reactions in unrelated retinal diseases. And so this is recently published in Retina and uh, the senior authors are Bailey Freund and Maurizio Battaglia Parodi. And Kyle, before we get into the nitty gritty details of this paper, maybe can you help us understand a little bit about PIC versus a PIC-like reaction? What are they trying to get at at this core paper? Thanks, Yasha. So as you said, some some Brainiac legends in our field had sort of an insightful um, consideration. So sort of taking the logic that there is an entity that we think of uh, as epimutes or secondary mutes, mutes-like reactions, um, which look like mutes, but occurring in the setting of a concurrent um, parallel primary retinal condition or underlying etiology, as in the sort of disruption of the outer retina is an impetus triggering um, an epi, a mutes-like phenomenon. So this sort of secondary mutes, mutes relationship as a, as a parallel thought process to the authors then looking at PIC um, as, um, as it might be relating to this PIC-like um, reaction. So PIC, we classically think of the focal hyperreflectivity hyper on the OCT and the outer retina, sort of this um, in the splitting of the RP Brooks membrane complex with choroidal hypertransmission. The authors here are proposing that things that are disrupting or breaking uh, the outer retina, so disrupting Brooks membrane, damage there, we think of, we'll go through a number of the things in the paper, um, may be a causative etiology to the local inflammation that results due to mechanical insults to the RP Brooks membrane, allowing some sort of autoimmune or inflammatory reaction to the outer retina or inner choroid. Yeah, you know, and, and normally I've always sort of thought of PIC in this sort of spectrum of multifocal choroiditis as the primary entity. And here they've compiled a whole host of different disease states that involve disruption of the outer retina, the RP Brooks membrane complex, and the choriocapillaris that all have a exact PIC-like response. And so Priya, do you wanna summarize the paper a little bit about uh, what they use, what were their inclusion criteria, their exclusion criteria, and uh, what did they find? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a retrospective observational study, again, who looked at patients with apparent manifestations of PIC, but who actually did not have PIC. What they defined as PIC-like lesions were um, depicted on OCT as focal hyperreflective lesions that split the RPE and Brooks membrane complex. There were also a lot of 
adjunctive OCT features that we kind of won't go into. Um, but they also included idiopathic multifocal choroiditis features, such as patients who had typical uh, multifocal scars with subretinal fibrosis, punched out choroidal atrophy, and curvilinear streaks. And they did exclude patients who had anything that could be theorized to directly lead to up to pick essentially. So anyone who has pathologic myopia, which we know can predispose or increase the risk of developing pick. They also excluded patients with a history of ocular histoplasmosis or systemic diseases such as tuberculosis or sarcoid. And so in summary, they had 16 patients with 22 eyes. And in these 22 eyes, the pick-like lesions uh, were found. Out of these 22 eyes, um, or in 16 patients, there were 10 patients who had inherited retinal diseases. And the other patients had other retinal etiologies, such as angioid streaks, neovascular age-related mac macular degeneration, ocular trauma. One patient had toxo, one patient had chronic RD, and one patient had laser retinopexy for a regmatogenous retinal detachment. All of the patients um, had the OCT characteristics that I described. The majority of the patients, 70%, had PIC-like characteristics detected at the first visit. And the other patients had PIC-like characteristics detected on follow-up visits. And this was at a median of 38 months. Eight eyes had pre-existent or concurrent macular nevascularization. And so in summary, they found and kind of described these PIC-like lesions in patients who otherwise did not have known PIC, but had some underlying etiology to cause disruption of the RPE and Brooks membrane complex. You know, I think uh, when, when you can read this paper, it can sometimes seem like a lot of medical jargon. And you start to ask yourself, what's the what's the point of all of this? And, you know, I think when I, when I was reading this paper, I thought one of the take-home messages is that these PIC-like reactions can occur in a whole host of disease states. And when you think about, well, what are the implications of this? Well, half of the patients ended up with PIC complications, including macular atrophy, subretinal fibrosis, and macular neovascularization. So Kyle, uh, according to the paper, I know that they didn't come up with any definitive statement. How were most of these patients treated and uh, what were the outcomes? Immunosuppression, immunosuppression, immunosuppression. I mean, I think that's the, the biggest takeaway is that these findings that we see as imaging is are truly perhaps inflammatory pick-like lesions that immunosuppression steroids really are the, are the uh, best option to try to avoid these things. And the authors kind of pull back and don't try to make comments on sort of the chronic features of it, right? The, the chronic lesions, um, but steroids, right? I think that it gives credence to actually trying to manage these patients, even if it pick is not the underlying primary disease that the pick associations are steroid responsive lesions. That's right. And, and so, you know, interestingly, the authors basically for all of the active pick patients, they were treated with systemic prednisone. And um, uh, many of them actually also received anti-VEGF because concurrent with these inflammatory lesions, there can also be uh, uh, sort of um, occult neovascularization or type 1 neovascularization. And so uh, what I would say is that uh, it's really important to recognize this finding because in the absence of this finding, there can be associated vision loss and, and, and complications from this. So uh, Priya, how often do you see PIC and what's your treatment strategy for these patients? So PIC, at least in a community retina setting, is not incredibly common, but there are many patients who present with 
a viral prodrome, and then we'll have, you know, pick-like lesions or some type of a, a, a manifestation of pick. And I think it's important to kind of keep a high level of suspicion for these findings, because remember, these patients can get pretty significant subretinal fibrosis otherwise. And so, um, you know, management of these with systemic steroids or local steroids is very important. And so Kyle, how about you? How are you managing your patients that, that come in with uh, pick or pick-like reactions? Well, pick-like, make, this makes me reconsider all of the patients I've probably missed with pick-like reactions over the years already, but certainly people with uh, fresh, acute, active pick. I mean, that's just, that's systemic prednisone, that's steroids for sure in our, in our practice. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's sort of interesting, right? Because, uh, uh, I think in the beginning, I was treating a lot of them with prednisone, and now I'm actually using OCTA to identify these inflammatory neovascularizations. And uh, and I think even a little bit of flow on the cross-sectional OCT overlaid with the ONFOS imaging can really help us identify these better. And so sometimes I can be a little bit more precise about the um, about whether or not I'm treating them just with steroids or steroids with adjunctive anti-VEGF therapy. And I always wonder, you know, Priya, this is not a, you know, when you have somebody with systemic sarcoidosis, maybe they're wheezing when they come see you, they have bilateral intermediate uveitis. Those are sort of clear cut cases where you're like, okay, this person needs steroid sparing therapy, plus probably steroids uh, given systemically. When you have PIC, this is sort of a inflammatory response really localized to the level of the RPE and uh, so are these patients ones that you're actively treating with oral steroids or are you actively trying to administer local therapies? Great question. You know, I think in the acute setting, um, oral steroids can be very helpful to get disease under control. And that's typically what I'll do is I, if I have a patient who has something that I think is vision threatening, I have a very low threshold to put oral steroids on board because remember you can take away oral steroids you know, if they get worse, you can stop it quickly. It washes out of the system quickly. But I think the goal, at least for me in the treatment of these patients is if it's a localized ocular condition to try to do local ocular therapies. And we're lucky that we have a lot of ocular therapies that we can use now for patients that really help to control disease in the eye without causing a lot of the systemic side effects that oral steroids can cause. Before we get into that, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. And why don't we talk for just a short while about uh, local therapies for uh, with steroids? We'll be right back. Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abismo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabismo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Welcome back to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS. Uh, we were just talking about PIC and PIC-like reactions, and uh, we were also sort of transitioning to the idea of potentially using local therapies uh, for these very localized immune responses without a systemic association. And so, Kyle, maybe can you talk to us a little bit about what are the FDA-approved local steroid therapy options that are available as well as some of the off-label indications. 
Uh, sure. Thanks, Yasha. You know, um, we were kind of also discussing that no matter what the imaging feature is that we think we've nailed the diagnosis and we know that this is PIC, whenever we start talking about injecting things that can't be taken away or turned off quickly, that we absolutely have to make sure that there is no infectious etiology for what's going on here. So whether that's making sure that we rule out TB with a quant, or checking in RPR and making sure our 76-year-old grandmother on the Upper East Side does not have syphilis uh, mimicking what we're, what we're treating as PIC. Um, so, you know, we have certain FDA-approved uh, injectables. There's Utique, um, there's Ozerdex, um, there's the new suprachoroidal, right, delivery systems. And then we can also give subtenons, steroids. These are all really lovely, lovely uh, delivery pathways and options for non-infectious, again, non-infectious uveitis. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's really, I can't stress that enough, the importance of, uh, you know, Priya's initial sort of thought about saying, well, putting them on oral prednisone, evaluating for a response, confirming that you are having a positive therapeutic response, and then sort of transitioning them to uh, a, a local therapy uh, certainly adds a lot of value. Because like you said, Kyle, once it's in the eye, you, you can't turn it off and you can't easily remove it. So we 100% have to know that this is sort of a non-infectious uh, inflammatory process. Uh, so, so Priya, uh, have you had any exposure to supracroidal delivery of triamcinolone? Because, you know, I certainly think that this is, if you're talking about a disease where the inflammation is localized to the level of RP Brooks membrane, maybe the inner choroid or outer retina, that sort of certainly seems like a very tempting option uh, in a case like this, even though the indication is for uh, uveitis with macular edema. Yeah, correct. So I have used suprachoroidal injections. Um, and as you said, this is approved for the macular edema component, but, but that being said, it is, it is a really nice technique. Um, it, it is not as intuitive as maybe it seems, you know, I had a couple of patients where, you know, you have this moment of stress where you're not sure if you're in the right spot or not. There's two different needle lengths and it does take a little bit of trial and error, but just like you mentioned, Yasha, supracortical therapy may actually get our therapy to the target where we need to get that therapy to, you know, maybe it's better to be in the supracortical space than it is to be in the vitreous cavity. Um, I think that we'll know this more with time, but, and, and, you know, I think that, um, as we use supracortical therapy more, we'll get much more comfortable with the injection technique. Right now, you know, my still preferred method is intravitreal therapy just because of comfort and because I'm used to it. But I think supracortical therapy will be a really nice um, approach in the future. And what about, you know, a, a not an insignificant minority of patients have recurrences? And uh, that's true in PIC. And now, thanks to the study authors, we now learned that just over 20% of these individuals also have recurrences. So when you're managing these patients, are these ones where you're thinking about a long-term steroid sparing therapy, or are these ones where you say, uh, we're going to wait until you have the recurrence because overwhelmingly you've got about a 70 to 80% chance of no recurrence? Gosh, that's so hard. You know, that's such a hard question because, you know, I think that they both have positives and negatives. Putting a patient on, um, you know, on a steroid sparing agent, such such as I'm assuming you're talking about systemic immunosuppression, 
you know, that has other implications and it has implications that we may not even understand because we're so focused on the eye. But I think at the end of the day, what I like to do in my practice is I give them a trial of just ocular uh, therapy. And if they have a recurrence and I think there's any risk of subretinal fibrosis or vision loss, I do have a low threshold to get rheumatology on board and consider something systemic because the last thing we want is for a patient to be under treated and have vision loss. And remember when these patients get vision loss, when they get subretinal fibrosis, that's irreversible. Um, you know, no anti-VEGF, no steroid is going to necessarily reverse that. And so I do think it's very important to have uh, a vigilance and, and to consider a rheumatology referral on the earlier side, if you're worried. Yeah. So, you know, I've noticed that like for those where I've done a systemic evaluation and I, uh, you know, sort of evaluating these as like a posterior uveitis for PIC patients. Uh, inevitably, the workup comes out negative. And, you know, uh, what I've noticed is that when patients have PIC-like lesions, they're exquisitely sensitive to their scotomas. And I uh, so these are patients that I think I would really strongly encourage us to give us their, you know, have them make sure that they have direct access to us. For me, they, they have my cell phone number and they can just text me and we can get them in in a, basically the next day to, to see me. And I think when I, when I can demonstrate that they have a recurrence, these are patients where I can frequently treat them right off the bat. And their visual recovery can oftentimes be quite good, especially if they're, they're, they're caught early. And I, I always get sort of uh, into that same dilemma, Priya, that you were talking about. And I have patients who have gone years without a recurrence and have not been on steroid sparing therapy. So my practice pattern is oftentimes to not put them on uh, any steroid sparing therapy. Uh, Kyle, what, what's been your approach to the sort of long-term surveillance of these patients after they've had their, uh, their PIC lesions? I think it's hard to, just as you both were saying, it's hard to commit somebody to systemic, you know, IMT for a disease in which by and large, the recurrence rate's quite low. Um, although, as you said, the repercussions are high if there's delay when it does recur. So I, I haven't started people on systemic immuno, you know, immunotherapy unless, of course, there's sort of recurrence or, you know, a juxtaphobial disease. Well, I've got to say thanks to these study authors. I think I'm probably even more confused now on the white dot syndromes when they can occur. Uh, but I think it really highlights a lot about uh, sort of all the interesting pathophysiology of how these uh, how these can exists. So I uh, really want to thank the study authors for putting together this really insightful paper. And I want to thank Priya and Kyle for uh, having the courage to discuss this really complex topic. Thanks, Yasha. Thanks, Yasha.